Well, good morning, church. Uh, it's just awesome to be able to worship together and praise our King. And as I was just listening to you and singing along with you, just reminded that uh, the reason why we're here is to lift high the name of Jesus. There's no reason for so many different people from different age groups, backgrounds, uh, to gather in one building like this every single week except for the name of Jesus. And he is worthy of our praise, and our prayer is that he would be glorified, and he would be honored, and our hearts would be for him, uh, just like we sang about. And so, uh, we're just going to continue in worship this morning through the Word, looking at what God has spoken and said is true through the Holy Spirit, uh, through the writing of the Apostle Paul and the book of Timothy. And so, that's where we're going to be. Um, I'd just like to pray for us again this morning, just coming out of the spirit of worship, and just ask that, that God would move in your life. That the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see the wonderful uh, words and truths of the law. And so I'm just going to pray that over you. Uh, But I'd like to ask you as I pray over you that you'd pray over me. uh, That God would give me the words to say, to not say, so that he might be magnified. So let's pray together. Lord, we, we love you. And we thank you that you are the lion and you are the lamb. That you are the lion who's in charge and in control and mighty, the ruler you're also the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world and for my sin in my place. And you are worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy. You alone are worthy. And so we just say that and we sing that and we believe that. And we gather here because of that. And so we, we ask that you would be seen as holy because you are holy. And we pray that in light of your holiness, you would just expose the things in our hearts that are not holy and our desires that are not. And help us to see just our need for you this morning. And I pray that you would be glorified. I pray uh, that you would increase, that, that I would decrease. I pray that nothing would be known in this place other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, we love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, I'll just ask you to turn over to 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 6. Uh, we are coming toward uh, the end of this series. And it's just been such a beautiful thing to be able to walk through another book of the Bible together, speaking to the family of faith. What does it mean for us to be the church? Uh, and, to, and to live in light of that. And we've been encouraged and challenged in a lot of different areas in this book. And I think it's just been so applicable uh, just to see how this applies to our church. And we've even spoken over the last few weeks some really hard messages. I was in one of the study groups and uh, last week. And one of the people who was in the group said, like, who decides who gets to preach those messages? Because like the last several have just been really heavy, really good, but just really challenging. And, and um, it's just neat to think about how God designs and orchestrates these things because it's such a timely book for where we are as a church. And so as we head into chapter 6, we've seen a lot of Paul addressing specific things that are happening within the family of faith that need to change, that Timothy needs to lead and resolve. A lot of those things are present here in our church family. And today there's a little bit of a shift to how we live within the family, but even outside in our our normal lives. And when we love God for who he is, and when we live in the faith family in a way that's honoring to God, it changes the way that we live in the outside world. It changes the way that we interact with our families and all those things. We see that right here. So we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 1, 10 verses. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants 
regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And we've talked about servants, slaves before. This is different than a lot of times when we think of slavery. This was a normal thing. You could have really good masters. It's a normal type of income. So don't think kind of our historical background, understanding of what slavery is. This is very different. We don't have time to get into all the nuances of that, but you just need to know that in this context. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground they are brothers. Meaning believers, fellow Christians. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and they are of the beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that, that does not agree with the sound words, we've seen that before, for our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And when he says a means of gain, he's talking about financial gain or the gain of power that people see living a certain way gets you something. If I do these rules, I obey these laws, I practice these things, then I'll either gain financially from the church or gain power within the people of the church or I will gain standing. It's an earning works kind of thing that he's talking about here. Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So he twists the perception. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So a heavy passage, a lot in here that we're going to try to unpack. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this text really closely and see how these things that Paul tells Timothy to bring to the church uh, in Ephesus apply to our hearts. And I think it's just beautiful to see the way the Gospels is woven through the way we look at these issues. And then from there, after our message this morning, we're going to have another elder conversation. We're going to have one uh, around the election. and How do we, as the church, this local body, respond to the political climate that's happening here? And our, our prayer this morning is through the preaching of the Word and through our conversation with our elders, through the singing, that we walk out of this place saying, How great is our God? And that we, as a people of the faith, can walk out of this uh, building into the lives that God has called us to uh, in every single day. And that we would be able to be a people of faith who put the gospel on display. And we see that here in this text. And so, about ten years ago, and I say about, and it'll be a couple weeks, it'll be actually ten years ago. uh, Something happened in my life that changed me forever. And that thing is when Katie said, I do. 
So in a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating our 10-year anniversary. And for those of you who are married, uh, you, you know what that's like. Or if you've ever been in a relationship with someone, you, you kind of understand what I'm about to say. But before Katie and I started dating about 11 and a half years ago, or courting, or whatever you want to call it, um, I kind of had my life, and I did my things my way, and I spent my money and my time and all that kind of stuff my way, right? And then something changed when I asked Katie to go on that first date, and we started spending time together. Now, if you know me, you, you know that I'm a man of not a whole lot of words, and you're sitting there saying, yeah, right, we've heard you preach before, we know that's not true. Uh, but if you know me and we spend time together, I'm introvert, I don't talk a whole lot, don't, uh, you know, just prefer to be quiet. Well, something changed when Katie and I started dating, and I began talking a lot. And I would call her, and we'd talk for hours and hours until two or three in the morning. We would talk, and we'd talk, and we'd talk about things I'd never talked about before. It being with her changed me and has changed me and is changing me. It changed the way I talk, changed the way I've spent money. I'm a, a tight wad when it comes to money. It's kind of a nice way of saying it. And so I, I just have a hard time spending, giving, being generous, all that kind of stuff. Well, all of a sudden, we've, we're married, we're dating, and I'm buying dead flowers that are just going to die more. And I'm spending money on these to give to her. Have you ever thought about that? You're like buying dead things to give. If I brought a dead cat to my wife, it wouldn't mean anything. But if I bring flowers that are not living can give those to her, like that's special. But I do it, and I love doing it because she loves getting it. And so I spend my money a different way. I spend time a different way. I, I've never, like, I like sports, but I don't really like hiking, camping, that kind of stuff. And she loves it. She loves going out in the mountains, doing all that kind of stuff. I don't understand why you'd want to take time and spend money to pretend to be homeless for a few days. That doesn't make sense to me. But because I love my wife, I do it, and, and I find joy in it because I'm with her. Or several weeks ago, we finally got to get away, and we went to the Silobration. And if you know what that is, you know what that is. If you don't, it's an HGTV kind of thing. And I would never have spent money to travel to go be a part of this home show kind of deal. Uh, but because she loves it, and I love her, I do it, and I love love being there. Here's, here's the point that, that sets up this passage so well this morning that I want you to, to grab a hold of. When the love of someone captures your heart, it changes the way you live, right? When Katie captured my heart, she continues to do that. It changes the way I think. It changes the way I love. It changes the way I live. And here's the big idea if you're taking notes and all this is online. You can grab this later. But when the beauty of God's love for us and for the faith family captures our hearts, it compels us to think, to love, and live in a way that's counterintuitive and a way that's countercultural. So think about this with me. When the love of my wife captured my heart, it changed the way I love her. It changed the way I think about her and about the world. It changes the way I live my life. When the beauty of Christ, God's love for you and for me, sending his son to die in our place, when we're sinners and rebels, living again, rising from the dead, and he gives us life for those who place their faith in him. When that love captures a life, it changes you from the inside out. Amen? changes the way you think about life. It changes the way that you love other people. It changes the way that you live. And so in 1 Timothy, what we've seen is the Apostle Paul speaking to this church, and he's talking about how the gospel should change the way that we live within one another, within this context of family. 
and it should spill over into the way that we live in the outside world. We're going to look at some ways in that does that. But just like the gospel and when Jesus captures our hearts and it changes us, it doesn't change us for the worse, right? It changes us for the better. Katie capturing my heart, it didn't change my life for the worse. I had to let go of some things, had to change some things, but it's changed my life for the better. When the gospel gets a hold of our life, these areas we're going to look at, they're hard, they're not natural. That's why we put up here counterintuitive. It's not how we start but it changes us for the better. And it brings joy and it brings hope. And we're going to look at how the gospel compels us to think and love and live in a way that's counterintuitive. It's not natural to who we are. And countercultural, it looks completely different than the world in which we live in. The gospel moves us from being self-focused to being God-focused to being family of faith focused, to being others focused and the community focused. And so when we begin to pursue right doctrine, when we begin to see the gospel identity that we have, when we begin to have orderly worship and men and women responding in the right roles that God's called us to in the family of faith, when we have the right leadership in place and when we're willing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough that we would be in community with them, But as Pastor Mike spoke a few weeks ago, speak the hard truths into each other's lives and be willing to receive that, live in authentic, gospel-driven community and be willing to have leaders in place like we talked about last week and follow those leaders, trusting that God has put them there. It changes the way the church functions. And out of that comes chapter 6, that we walk out of the family of faith in orderly worship and all those different things. And it changes the way we live around the outside world. And we have growing to do in these areas. And so what I want to challenge you to do is we walk through four things that Paul tells us this morning. He calls us to as believers. I don't want you to look at it and say, man, that's so hard, or I don't like that, or that's the natural thing. But what I want you to see and what I want you to pray through as we walk through this passage is, Lord, help me to see how this is a good thing. Help me to see how this is answering the desires of my heart. Help me to see how this is a beautiful gift from you because these things are. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul shows four ways in which the beauty of the gospel compels us. And that word is so important. It's not something you have to go and do. The beauty of the gospel, when it gets a hold of your heart, it compels you. It motivates you. It constrains you. It pulls you. It causes you to want to do these things for the glory of God. If these four things that Paul lists that we're going to walk through are an overflow of your abiding relationship with Jesus, I just want to encourage you, church, this is one way to know that God's at work in your life. Because these four things we're going to look at, they are not natural. They are counterintuitive. They push against us. They rub against us in our flesh. And so if God is at work in these four areas in your life, rejoice. If he's not, ask that he would be. And I just guarantee you these four things that we're about to talk about, that if they're at work in your life and they're becoming and God's doing this work in you, your lost friends, your lost family members, your co-workers, your classmates, they're going to take notice of your life. Because they reshape the way we view the world. And if you are, these things are being borne out in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit... It's compelling to 
a lost and dying world. So let's look at the four. The first one is this. When God's love for us and for the faith family captures our hearts, it compels us to honor those in authority over us. So here's the first one that we are called to do. Honor those in authority over us. Look at uh, verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Now that word yoke means to be tied or attached to something. So when we're talking about honor those in authority over us, not specifically talking about our president or our official leaders or police officers, all those yes, 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 the Bible speaks to that, but this is specifically talking about your boss. If you have a job, if you're an employee, your boss, if you're a student, your teacher, if you're a child in the room, any, any kids in the room paying attention? Yeah, your parent. Uh, if anyone who serves or leads in a ministry, your, your leader. We've already talked about church leadership. This speaks into that. So anyone who's in authority in your life that you are yoked to, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So here's the key. We are supposed to look at anyone who's in authority, direct authority over us, and we are to give them all honor. And that word honor, um, worthy means appropriate. All honor is a state of being highly respected or valued. Let's keep going. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So why? Why should we hold them in all honor? And before I answer that question, let me just be really clear. Holding your boss or holding your teacher or holding your parent in all honor is not just obeying them, right? There's a difference between obedience and honor. You can be obedient without showing honor. You can get your job done at work but not show honor to your boss. You can get your schoolwork and your papers turned in but not show honor to your teacher, right? You guys tracking with me? My son, Jack, he can obey me, but not show honor in his obedience to me. So God is taking it up a level, and he's saying not just obey those who are in authority over you, but show them all honor. Well, why? Well, he answers that question. That the name of God and the teaching, the teaching of God's word of Christ, may not be reviled. And that word reviled literally means blasphemed. So think about the third commandment. Shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That there's a sense, it's the same word, where Paul is saying that when we do not show those who are in authority over us the honor that they are due, we are blaspheming. We are taking God's name in vain. We are bringing ridicule to God. We are not glorifying Him in the context in which He's placed us, but we are defaming His name. And we are being hypocrites because we are not living out the teaching of this book. Now this it can be really hard because you might be sitting there and saying, Paul, I, you don't know my boss. Paul, you don't know my teacher. Paul, you don't know my parents. Like, whoa. You know, so I, I get it. I've, I've been there. But listen, this is, this, is, this is why Paul's saying this. Do you believe that God is in control of all things? Yes? Yes, we affirm that. We believe he's in authority. If God is in control of all things, if he is over all things, then you are not at your job by accident. And your boss is not the ultimate authority over you. Guess who is? 
God. And within your home, guess who's the ultimate authority over you? God. In your class, guess who's the ultimate authority over you? God. And God has put you there for a reason. So when you and I, when we show honor to those who are in authority over us, we are bringing glory to the name of God. Because he's in control and he's put us there. And whether you have the rest of your life or you have one other day, here's the beautiful part of this. No matter what job you have, no matter what family you're in, no matter where you go to school, whatever your context is, you have purpose in that place because of Jesus Christ. Amen? If you're a believer and God has reconciled you and rescued you and has put you in a spot, that place has purpose because Jesus has rescued you. And when you honor that person who's over you, you bring glory to the name of God. And you bring honor to God's word and the teaching. So how do we do that? We should be the best employees out there for the glory of God. We should be the best students in our class that we can possibly be for the glory of God. We should be, if you're a believer and you're a child in this room or a teenager, you should be the best son or daughter that you can possibly be for the glory of God. And when we do that, God gets glorified and we get satisfied because we're living with a purpose. And again, think about the context. Think about the Roman Empire. Think about the conditions. Think about slavery. This is not an ideal. This is not nine to five with two weeks of paid vacation or summer breaks. This is hard, what Paul's saying. But he's saying if you want the gospel to capture your heart and God to be on display, one way that happens is in our work relationships. And when we live that way, God gets lifted up. I... I'm in those positions, and I have been there, and I wrestle with this. Lord, how do I show honor to the men who've been put in my life? And he goes on to say, we need to be especially careful that we do this with believers. So look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better that those who benefit by their good service are believers and the beloved. What's he saying? He's saying that there's going to be a temptation in our hearts if we have someone in authority over us who's a brother or sister in Christ to take advantage of that relationship. But instead, we should show them more honor and work even harder because, because they're believers, the prophets and the things that they do will go to expand the gospel. So we should be uh, showing honor to those in authority over us. Colossians three twenty two through 24 which we looked at uh, earlier this year, says this, Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as unto the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So it's one way the gospel is compelling through our lives is when we honor the authorities that God has placed in us. And there's joy in doing that because we are entrusting ourselves to the one who's rescued us. So here's the second thing. First is honoring those in authority. Here's the second thing that he says should be true of believers that compels us uh, to live and think and love differently. We are to recognize and reject false teaching and false thinking. We are to honor those in authority over us We are to recognize and reject false teaching and false thinking. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up 
with conceit and understands nothing. One of the temptations that you and I are going to face, and we face every single day, and it's something that can come into this church very easily, is false teaching and false thinking. And what Paul says is false teaching, false doctrine, it flows from false thinking. He says later, the person understands nothing, and it's the opposite of sound words. We talked about several weeks ago when we talked about false teaching, how that word sound is the word we get the word hygiene from in, in our English dictionary. And so hygiene means health, wholesome, beautiful. It's what aligns with God's word. It's what brings health to our souls. And so we are to reject false teachers and false thinking. And what we have to be so careful about is we automatically think, oh yeah, I'm not going to follow false teachers, I'm not going to get into that. But what we need to recognize is our culture and our churches are full of false thinking and false assumptions, right? It doesn't line up with God's Word. And even in a church that preaches the Bible and adheres to the truth, it's easy for those things to just come into our minds. As an example, we were at home uh, last week, and you know we were doing what all good parents do. Uh, before you put your kids to bed, we're letting them watch TV. Um, just being honest, you know, we do the family devotion plan, but we were watching TV. And there was this cartoon, and they're watching, and kind of this older person is speaking to this young person, the heroine in the story, and she makes this statement. Sometimes your feelings and what you know to be true is going to be different than what someone else knows to be true. And in that moment, you have to follow what you know to be true. TV off, you know, at that moment. Okay, time out, hold on. You know, and she's falling out by saying, you know, you need to follow your heart. You need to follow your beliefs and your feelings and go after that no matter what other people say. Now, on the surface, that sounds really good, Right? You know it's true, someone else thinks they know it's true, you've got to be true to yourself, true to your feelings, fall that. But that's not biblical at all. Why? Because Jeremiah 17 says the heart is desperately wicked, it is incurable, who can know it, right? We can't follow our hearts because our hearts are broken. And truth is not defined by what I feel is true or what you feel is true. Truth is defined by what God has said, Amen. And if we don't know and we don't understand what God has said, we will follow our hearts. We will follow our emotions. We will follow what culture says. And that sinks into the church and it sinks into Christian literature so quickly. So we have to be on guard. And sometimes it's intentional. It's people coming into the church, and Paul's specifically speaking to this, who are trying to deceive and gain authority and gain privilege and gain uh, money through the church. Sometimes it's through innocence. And we need to be careful that we're not naive to false teaching and false assumptions, church. We must be careful. We must guard our hearts. That's one reason why we as a church have moved to doing the study groups. Because through the study groups we have teachers that are vetted and we know their heart and we know their background. And there's an accountability structure for what they can teach and what they cannot teach. And even in the platform, this preaching pulpit, it's not just me getting up here deciding what passage I'm going to preach. There's a team. We do that on purpose to help guard what we're learning. But we have to be people of the word and of truth. And so I wish I had time to just walk through these verses and everything that's here that talks about how we can know what false teaching is and and know what that's not. We don't have time to do that. 
But I do want to just recognize a couple things that it says here. One is that false teaching, if you want to know if something's false teaching, anytime you're adding to God's word, it's false teaching. Anytime you're disagreeing with God's word that contradicts the words of Christ, verse 3, sound words, it's false teaching. And what is the root, verse 4? Pride. He is puffed up. Pride pursues false teaching and false thinking. And here's the result, and this is really important. If you want to know that there's, if there's some false thinking or false teaching, here's how that comes out. Disunity. Slander. Bitterness. Conceit. This is what he says. When we talk about people behind their back, when there's dissension happening in the body, you always know false teaching and false thinking is happening. It always comes out. And so we want to be a people of the truth. How do we do that? Well, thanks be to God, He's given us His Word. He's given us truth. So we want to be a people of the Word. Jesus said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through Him. So we have the truth. God's given us that. So we can be a people who pursue the truth. So we're to honor our authorities. We're to reject false teaching and false thinking. Here's the third one. Honestly, this is the one that I've just wrestled so much with in my heart because I struggle with it just personally being completely vulnerable. And it's this. We are called to pursue contentment in Jesus. We are called to pursue contentment in Jesus. Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So trying to gain something monetarily through the gospel is not gain. But godliness, pursuing Christ-likeness, pursuing holiness, and being content with what God has given you and the place of life he's placed you is great gain. Well, why? For we brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out. We didn't bring it in, can't take it out. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul's saying there is a beauty and there is a grace that all of God's people have access to in their lives that can withstand anything you face, and that is contentment in Jesus Christ. But do you know how hard that is? It's hard, right? Let's just be really honest. I mentioned earlier, a few weeks ago, my wife and I got to go to this thing called the Celebrations in, in Texas, and, and there they have all this home, it's this kind of remodel, show, deal, fixer-roper kind of thing, and so you go and they have all these different things they've done, and things you can buy, and all that, and even as we're walking through that, do you know what's happening in my heart? I wish I had that for my home. I wish my house looked like that. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. I wish I didn't have this. I wish I didn't have that. And in that moment, the the sinful nature in my heart is starting to come out and I feel that war in me to have something that is not mine. And instead of being content in Jesus and what he has done and not worrying about all the other stuff to want to grab hold of those things, that's a battle in your heart and in my heart. There's a beauty to having our contentment in Jesus Christ. Godliness devout practice for and belief in God with contentment. The word contentment literally means sufficient or satisfaction. So think about hunger pains. You know, you're going to leave church between 12 and 12.30 and there's going to be something rumbling in your stomach, right? Those are hunger pains. Where are we going to go get lunch today? And this idea of contentment is that your soul has hunger pains and Jesus is the satisfaction of your soul and of your hunger. Think about how freeing it would be to walk through life 
and to be so satisfied in Jesus that you need nothing else. So satisfied in Jesus, you can move across the world, you can sell it all, you can walk through any pain because Christ is enough. And this is what Paul is longing for the church in Ephesus and for our church, for your heart and family and for mine. And the struggle is, that Paul's bringing out, is that there's a difference between trying to find our satisfaction in God versus trying to find our satisfaction in His gifts. Do we desire the giver or the gifts? Do we want God or his stuff? And the beauty of the gospel says that God gave everything so that you and I could find our contentment in him. St. Augustine said it this way, we are forever restless until we find our rest in him. What's your soul resting in this morning, friend? What's the weight of your soul resting in? A person or a relationship cannot carry the weight of your soul. A thing, a car, a home, your kids, your spouse, they cannot carry the weight of your soul and they will crush, your soul will crush those things in its path unless God carries the weight of our souls. Our default is to try to find our contentment in anything other than God. It never works. God is not the means to get what our heart desires. God is the end. He alone is what our heart was created for. I was listening to a story this week about an 11-year-old boy named Randall who has cancer. And Randall's a believer, and these people have gone to visit Randall and you know, going, hearing his story and what's happening. They don't know if he's going to make it. He's lost all his hair. He's losing different things. Just think about that. 11-year-old child. Some of you have walked through this. Some of you are walking through cancer now. And they asked Randall, Randall, what can we pray for you for? And he asked two, for two things right off the bat. One was strength for my family. And second, that God's name would be glorified through whatever days I have left with my life. That is contentment. When you can stare cancer in the face and say, Christ is enough, that is contentment. When you can stare job loss in the face and say, Christ is enough. When you can stare an election that's so scary in the face and say that Jesus is enough, that is contentment. Think about how that would change your life, how that would change my life. Philippians 4, 11-13 says this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's the secret. Christ is enough. It's the greatest treasure. He is enough. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says it this way, And God is able to make, there's a lot of alls here, all grace abound to you, so that having all efficiency, sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Jesus is life. Jesus is enough. Jesus is what your heart desires. And if that becomes your life and my life, your family's going to look at you, and your neighbors are going to look at you, your coworkers are going to look at you, and they're going to say, what on earth is happening in you? Because when your reward is Christ, nothing on this earth grips your heart anymore. Think about the freedom of that. I have food, I have clothing, I have Christ. I need nothing else. May we be that kind of people. And here's the last one. We are to love God more than money. 
Yeah, we're going there. Not a lot of time left, but we're going to go there. So that's where the passage goes. Look at, look at this. And this is coming out of contentment. He gets really specific. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. There's the key word. Those who desire to be rich. He doesn't say riches are bad. He doesn't say riches are sin. If you were a good steward of what God's given you and God's blessed you with that and your desire is not money, your desire is to be faithful, that's okay. But the desire, the longing to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare. Think about what a snare is, a temptation. The enemy, the evil one, has set a trap in your life and in my life. And that's that we would long to have more money. That we would long to have more possessions. And it is a snare for your soul. It is a trap. It is an enemy trying to capture you and me. Listen to the way he, he describes it. Into a snare, verse 9, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Think about the key words. That pursuing wealth plunges you into ruin. It plunges you into destruction. It's a trap for your soul. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds. That's really important. He doesn't say the love of money is the root of evil. Money is not evil. God owns everything, right? Money is not the problem. It is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Look at the result. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Doesn't that sound, I don't even know what a pang is, but doesn't that sound terrible? Pierced with many pangs. Here's the idea. is When you love money more than God, it is going to kill you from the inside out. We want to be a people who don't hold on to money. We want to be a people who are radically generous. This is why your elders would stay in front of you. We want to call everyone over the next three months to faithfully tithe or go above and beyond. Not because we want more money. Not because we want you to do this or do that. We want something for you. We want you to live in a way that's radically generous. Why? Because God has been radically generous toward you and toward me. Amen? Thankfully, God did not withhold His Son. Faithfully, God did not hold back, but God poured out His blessings. What was most dear to him for us. Ultimately, generosity is not a money issue. It is a gospel issue. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's a gospel issue. These are all gospel issues. So we want to respond to the gospel. So I invite you just to bow your heads and to close your eyes this morning as we respond. We've looked at four different things in this passage. And I just want you to take a minute just to evaluate your heart. Are these things becoming true in you? Honor authority. Reject false thinking because you're grounded in God's word. That your contentment is in Jesus Christ. And that there's a love for God that's greater than a love for for money, And if there's one or maybe all those areas, for me, it's all of them in certain realms. This is a time to go to the altar, Romans 12.1. Our lives are supposed to be an act of a living sacrifice. To bring our sacrifice of worship to God. It's time to bring our lives to the altar and say, God, I've been holding on to this. I lay it down. I give it to you. 
Maybe you're weary, you're tired because you've been chasing other things. You've been chasing health, you've been chasing a new job, you've been chasing all these other things. Your kids, your spouse, trying to satisfy your soul and you need to come drink from the well of Jesus Christ. What your heart longs for is not that stuff, it is Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never known Christ. This morning, you can have life have it more abundantly in Jesus by placing your faith of him in him repenting of your sin and turning to him he was not stingy when he laid down his life for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross despising the shame for you and for me may we live lives like that fully content in him Lord we need you and we love you this morning I pray that you would do your work in us and that we would be the kind of people who when we live this way, we think and love and live in light of the gospel, that it would be compelling for a watching world to see. It's your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?